Chapter twenty seven, sections one and two of J. B. Beery's The Student's Roman Empire, part two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Caron. The Student's Roman Empire, part two, by John Bagnell Beery. Chapter twenty seven, The Principate of Antoninus. Pius, sections one and two. Section one, The Administration of Antoninus. The death of Hadrian was welcome to the Roman nobility, to whom he was odious, and the installation of Tim's Antoninus as princeps was attached with no difficulties. The Senate wished to signify their dislike of the dead emperor by condemning his memory, but their malice was overcome by the influence of Antoninus, and perhaps also by fear of the soldiers, with whom Hadrian was extremely popular. The dend Eber was duly enrolled among the gods. His body was conveyed from Rays in Rome, and lodged in his own mausoleum. It has been supposed that the name Pius, which Antoninus bore before the end of 138 A.D., was given to him on account of his piety towards his adoptive father. But this is not certain, and others think that he won it by the general clemency of his character. The family of Antoninus belonged to Nemasus in Gilia Narbonensis. It is possible that the amphitheater of which the remains are still to be seen there, and the aqueduct known as the Aetant Dugard, were built by this emperor. Both his father and grandfather were consulars. He had himself gone through the usual career of public honors, had been appointed one of the four consulars of Italy and had been proconsul of Asia. He married the sister of Aelius Verus Aenea Galeria Faustina, by whom he had two sons who died young, and two daughters. Hadrian had willed that one of these daughters, who bore her mother's nine Faustina, should many Lucius Verus, while Marcus Aurelius should marry the sister of Verus. But as Verus was only a child, Antoninus, upset this arrangement, and united the younger Faustina with Marcus Aurelius, probably 146 A.D. Shortly afterwards, 147 A.D., he made Marcus his consort in the empire by conferring on him the proconsular imperium and the tribunician power along with the special right of proposing five measures at one session of the Senate. Marcus bore the title Caesar, which meant that he was presumptive successor, and occupied theoretically the same position which Antoninus had occupied before Hadrian's death, but he took no active part in the administration, and did not bear the title imperator. The other adopted son of Antoninus, L. Verus, was not admitted to the dignitives which were granted to Marcus. His image, indeed, appeared on imperial coins, but he was not entitled Caesar only Augusti films. It is quite clear that Antoninus did not contemplate the idea of two emperors of equal authority. Marcus was to be his successor, and it was for Marcus hereafter, if he chose, to elevate his brother Verus to the position of Caesar. The universal consent of antiquity represents Antoninus as a most estimable man, honorable and dignified, yet affable and condensing. He won golden opinions from all men. His promotion to the highest position in the state 
did not change his temper or his manners. In private life he was signally simple and temperate, but however estimable as a man, Antoninus was hardly a great statesman. The rest which the empire enjoyed under his auspices had been rendered possible through Hadrian's activity, and was not due to his own exertions. On the other hand, he carried the policy of peace at any price too far, and so entailed calamities on the state after his death. He not only had no originality or power of initiative, but he had not even the insight or boldness to work further on the new lines marked out by Hadrian. The wall in North Britain is the sole exception. The only administrative changes in his reign were retrogressive. Thus he did away with the four judges of Italy. This was a concession to the Senate, and concession to the Senate was one of the notes of policy which distinguished his reign as a reaction against that of Hadrian. If he had been equally estimable as a man, but stronger as a ruler, and less obliging to the Senate, a very different account of his character would have been transmitted to us. He troubled himself little with the provinces, except in so far as to hinder oppression in collecting the taxes, and probably only left Italy once during his reign. He disapproved of empirical progresses on the ground that they were a burden on the provincials, but he was also doubtless influenced by the fact that Hadrian's long absence from Rome had given dissatisfaction. We hear, however, of roads built in various provinces, and of a few other public works, such as at the Temple of Meptune at Lambasis. He adopted the reasonable principle of retaining provincial governors and other officials at their posts for long extras. The financial policy of Antoninus was marked by care and economy. The only unfavorable thing that has been said of him is that he was a cheese-parer. No extravagance was permitted at his court. Although he reduced the taxes, he left in the treasury at his death a sum of 2,700 million sesterces, 21,600,000 in public largesses. However, he was excessively liberal. There were no less than nine congiaria during his reign, and his games were not less magnificent than those of his predecessors in A.D., 147 he celebrated the Ludi Siculares on the ninth hundredth anniversary of the foundation of the city. He built a temple to the defied Hadrian and completed the emperor's mausoleum. The reign of Antionus, as has been already said, was marked by peace, the result of Hadrian's able policy on the frontiers. The only serious warfare was in Britain. There were some trifling disturbances which do not deserve to be dignified by the name of wars in other quarters. The governors of the Danube provinces had to deal with the Dacian revolt, and Greece was surprised by the invasion of a marauding band of Costabooks, probably a Samaritan people, who penetrated as far as Aletia in Phocis Olbia, had to be protected, estranged the attacks of the Scythians of Tarica and the Alans had to be beaten back more than once from the American borders. There were, Aegean, some Jewish disturbances in the east, and some Moorish disturbances in Africa. A revolt in Egypt, in Egypt induced the emperor to leave Italy, seemingly the only occasion in which he made a provincial expedition during his long reign, about 154 A.D. About the same time difficulties had arisen with King Vologuses IV, in reference to Armenia.
and here perhaps antoninus was led by his love of peace into adopting a weak policy and sacrificing to temporary tranquillity the interests of a more permanent resettlement peace was made in 155 a.d but the inevitable war broke out in the following reign the prestige which rome enjoyed at this time in the eyes of neighboring peoples is shown by the fact that the lazi of colchis and the quadi asked the emperor to appoint their kings the activity which was displayed in britain is contrasted with the inactivity in other parts of the empire the Higrantes rebelled and were defeated and thoroughly reduced by q lolius urbicus 140 a d the legatus under his direction a new line of fortification was constructed between the firths of clota and bojotria clyde and forth at the narrowest part of the island the work was begun in 142 a d it was not such an elaborate construction as that of hadrian's but consisted of a fosse about forty feet wide and twenty feet deep and an earth wall now known as graham's dyke on the southern side of the fosse it did not run along hills like hadrian's wall but through level country for a distance of about thirty-seven miles from Caridian on the fourth to west kilpatrick on the clyde south of the fosse ran a military road along which were ten camps surrounded with mound and ditch the north side of these camps which coincides with the wall is always closed up the wall of antoninus like the wall of hadrian was intended to be both a check on the country to the south of it and a basis of operations for further conquests to the north the roman government had not abandoned the design of subjugating the whole island this is proved by the circumstance that the camps of the wall of antoninus are not the most northerly roman positions the remains of a roman camp are still to be seen at ardoch north of stirling the energetic policy pursued by antoninus in britain secured for that country peace and prosperity for sixty years this fact suggests that he might have better consulted the interests of the empire and averted the troubles which benefell in the reign of his successor if he had acted with like vigor on the danube and on the oriental frontier it is in the field of law that the chief importance and credit of the principate of antoninus lie the same temper which made him somewhat weak in his foreign policy made him strong in jurisprudence and legislation the importance of his reign in the history of roman law is not due to any single sweeping reform like the final redaction of the perpetual edict by hadrian but to the spirit which guided his measures antoninus laid special stress on equity while on the one hand he was no rash innovator ready to tamper unscrupulously with the written law he entertained on the other hand no superstitions reverence for the letter he invariably consulted the dictates of equity and humanity and introduced into roman law many important new principles conceived in this spirit the view which he took of the administration of justice is thus expressed by himself although traditional forms must not be lightly altered yet when demonstrable equity demands it is necessary to intervene the activity and jurisprudence which marked the reign of antoninus and prepared the way for the golden age of roman law at the beginning of the third century must be partly at least inputted to hadrian's reform on the imperial castilium described in the last chapter one of hadrian's clus flori 
P. Salvus Julianus, who had codified the edict, was also active under Astoninus, by whom he was promoted to be consul and prefect of the city. The chief lawyers by whom the emperor was assisted were five in number, L. Fumus Abernius Valens, an author of legal treatises, L. Volusius Mescianus, were chosen to conduct the legal studies of Marcus Aurelius, and author of a large work on Fidei Commissui, Testamentary Trusts, L. Upius Marcellius, a prolific writer, and two others. Some of these lawyers belonged to the Proculian school, like Upius Marcellus, others to the Sabinian, like Valens, so that the decisions of the imperial council steered a mean way between the two opposite schools of the intention which was given to the study of law at this period is shown by the appearance of the tristris of gius an elementary manual for beginners probably published about one sixty one a d of the author we know absolutely nothing even his name is uncertain it has already been that there is a tendency under the empire to elevate the condition of slaves and this tendency was zealously promoted by antoninus he passed measures to facilitate enfranchisement his decision in one case will illustrate his spirit a female slave was to have been made free by a fidei commissum but chance circumstances caused the act of enfranchisement to be displayed in the meantime she gives birth to children and the question arises are the children to be slaves or free Antoninus decided that in such a case the children shall be free, as it would be unfair that they should suffer on account of the accident which retarded their mother's emancipation. In criminal law, Antoninus introduced the important principle, which, though now universally recognized in theory, is not always respected in practice, that accused persons are not to be treated as guilty before trial. He also asserted the principle that the trial was to be held and the punishment inflicted in the place where the crime had been committed. He meditated the use of torture in examining slaves by certain limitations. Thus he prohibited the application of torture to children under fourteen years, though this rule had exceptions. It would be as absurd to blame this humane prince for not abolishing the practice of torture altogether as it would be to blame him for not abolishing slavery. He deserves great credit for what he did in meditation of both institutions, but the abolition of either was quite beyond the scope of the imagination of any men of this time. The universal use of torture in Christian countries until recent times illustrates the supposed necessity of its use. One of the most striking features in the criminal legislation of Antoninus is the account taken of social rank. There was always under the empire a social distinction of freemen into two classes, the humiloris men of low decree and the hound stories, men of high degree the criteron of this distinction was mainly wealth the hannesphorus were practically the rich the humitoris the poor under antionis this unwritten distinction is recognized by law but we cannot tell whether he was the first to aive official recognition there can be little doubt that it had been influenced practice actually if not confessedly before his time but now the law becomes openly and officially a respecter of persons there is a law becomes openly and officially a respecter of persons there is a different justice for the base and for the noble different penalties are assigned for the same offence 
according as it is committed by a humilitor or a holestior show me the man and i will show you the law it is not merely the practice of the judge but the principle of the legislator and it was a principle against which no one grumbled antoninus differs from his predecessors in being personally a religious man and really devoted to the worship of the natural gods with augustus religion had been mainly a matter of policy trahan had been indifferent hadrian was a sceptic but antoninus took very seriously the religious duties which devolved upon him as pontifex maximus and member of other colleges in this respect contemporaries compared to him numa the senate erected a monument to him on account of his zeal for public religious ceremonies one can discern in the correspondence of fronto the instructor of marcus in latin rhetoric that a certain spirit of piety prevailed in the circle of the imperial family closely connected with zeal for the maintenance of the national religion was the emperor's interest in the antiquities of roman history the coins issued on the occasion of the secular games represent the arrival of aeneas at latvium the birth of romulus and ramus the shields of numa the miracle of the agora nasvius the exploits of horatius codus and other events of the story of ancient rome palantium the arcadian home of Evander was promoted to be a city and immunity was granted to the people of ilium the city of urius new privileges were granted to lavinium but devoted as he was to the pagan religion and traditions of rome antoninus was tolerant of other creeds he did not indeed repeal the laws which were in force against christians but he discouraged persecution section two the private life of antoninus and his death the significance of the reign of antoninus lies just in the fact that it was signally devoid of striking events hence our attention undistracted by wars or great administrative changes is naturally turned to the personality of the emperor himself and his private life and perhaps nothing will better serve to convey an impression of the tranquillity of his reign than the glimpses which we get in the correspondence of fronto of the simple daily life of the imperial family and the peaceful atmosphere in which they lived the loss of his wife faustina who died in one forty or one forty one a d was a great blow to the emperor who loved her deeply as we know from his own words writing to fronto who had praised ab insignum erga ceremonias publicus surum et religionium corp insker lot lot vi one thousand one see below chapter thirty twenty four her in a speech in the senate he says the part of your speech which related to the honoring of my faustina by the title augusta seemed to me even more true than eloquent for it is really the case i would not prefer to live with her at garus than in the place without her faustina was a beautiful woman and scandal was hissy with her name but there is no conclusive evidence for the truth of the charges of infidelity which rumor brought against her it seems clear that Altenai, us had no suspicions he heaped honors upon her memory after her death he was defied a temple was erected in her honor and prestigious instituted for her worship her image was publicly displayed at the circundan games a new alimentary endowment was made in pursuance 
of the policy of Nerva and Trajan for orphan girls, who were called Faustinis and Toninus, did not run the risk of endangering the peace of his family by taking another wife. Galeria Lestrata, a freed woman of Faustina, lived with him in the relation of concubinage, which among the Romans was a legal bond through inferior to marriage and involved certain rights for an emperor. It corresponded somewhat to morgantic marriage. The two adopted sons of Antoninus lived continually with their father. True affection and sympathy seemed to have bound together Antoninus and Marcus. This comes out in the correspondence of Pronto and in the meditations of Marcus. At Rome, the imperial family lived in the house of Tiribius on the north side of the Palatine. Here the emperor kept up the same social intercourse with his friends as before his elevation. He was not a lover of formality and rigorous etiquette, and he used often to wear the tunic at receptions instead of the official toga. He was obliged, however, to resign himself to maintaining the immense staff of domestics, which had come to be considered inspendable in the imperial palace. Although he was excessively simple in his dress, he had several officers of the wardrobe, we meet at his court a servant, whose sole duty it was to announce the names of visitors, nomenclator a silitarius, on whom it devolved to keep silence among the slaves, a pedagogus perorum, who instructed the pages, and many others. Antoninus did not take the same personal interest in philosophy and literature, which had been a characteristic feature in Hadrian, but he patronized men of letters, and gathered them about him at his court mainly for the sake of his son, by whom they were really appreciated. M. Cornelius Fronto shared the intimacy of the emperor, as well as of Marcus, his pupil. Herodicus Atticus, the roaster of Marcus in Greek rhetoric, was also highly favored. Junius Rhetisticus, a Stoic philosopher who exercised a great allowance over the mind of the young Caesar, who belonged to the court circle, but it is in the country not in the city at his village not in the palatine that we get the most pleasing pleasure of antoninus and his family he was born and brought up in the country and we love nothing so well as rural life whenever he could he left rome for his house at lorium on the aurelian way or for tryon's villa at omtuk overlooking the sea for signa in latium or for campania the villa of Lorium, not far from Rome, seems to have been his favorite residence. It was there that he died. In the country, his pastimes were hunting and angling. Letters of Marcus to his beloved master describe how the days passed by in simple occupations, writing, reading, writing, talking nonsense with Faustina, the younger, whom he calls my little mamma. There is a delightful description of the vintage at Signa. The emperor and his family all dine in the wine-press, and listen to the jests of the peasant. A characteristic antidote is told of Antoninus and the sophist Polmon. When Antoninus was proconsul of Asia, he entered the house of Polmon at Smyrna without being invited, assuming that he would be welcome. Polmon happened to be absent, but he returned in the course of the night and turned the governor, bag and hagag, out of the house. Antoninus said nothing at the time, but sought shelter with some more hospitable inhabitant, but he did not forget the insult, and had afterwards opportunities of revenging himself by witty words. When he was emperor, Polmon visited Rome, and Antoninus made him welcome. 
give Pullman apartments, he said, and see that no one turned him out of doors. An actor of tragedy complained that he was expelled from a dramatic representation at which Pullman was presiding, just when he was about to begin his path. At what hour of the day? Antoninus asked, Do you say that he drove you from the stage? At midday. Ah, he drove me out of the house at midnight, and I made no complaint. But perhaps the liveliest idea of his personality will be gained from the picture of him, which has been drawn by his adopted son. In my father, Marcus writes in his meditations, I bade an example of mildness of manners and firmness of resolution, contempt of vainglory, industry, and perseverance. He was accessible to all who had counsel to give on public matters, and invariably allowed to everyone his due share at consideration. He knew when to relax as well as when to labor. He taught me to forbear from Lysiantus' indulgences, to conduct myself as an equal among equals, to lay on my friends no burden of servility, neither changing them capriciously, nor passionately attaching myself to any. From him I learned to be self-sufficing and cheerful in every fortune, to exercise foresight in public affairs, and not to be above examining the smallest matters without affectation, to rise superior to vulgar acclamations, to worship the gods without superstition, and serve mankind without ambition in all things, to be sober and steadfast, not led away by idle novelties, to be content with little, enjoying in moderation the comforts within my reach, but never repining at their absence. Moreover, from him I learned to be no sophist, no pellant, but a practical man of the world, yet at the same time to give due honor to true philosophers, to be polite in manner, neat in person, and to attend to my health, so far as to rid myself of the need of medicine and physicians, again to concede, without a grudge, their preeminence, to all who specifically excel in legal or any other knowledge, to, to act in all things after the usage of our ancestors, yet without pedantry, my father was ever prudent and moderate. He neither indulged in private buildings, or in excessive largesses, or extravagant shows to the people. He looked to his duty only not to the opinion that might be formed of his actions. He was temperate in the use of baths, modest in dress, indifferent to the beauty of his slaves. Such was the whole character of his life and manners. Nothing excessive, nothing rude, nothing ever done. It might be said of him as of Socrates, that he could both abstain from and enjoy the things which men in general find it hard to abstain from at all, and cannot enjoy without excess. The appearance of Antoninus, as we know it, from his busts, corresponds to the written records of his character and temperament. They present the features of a man who is grave yet gentle, firm yet kind, robust and earnest, but neither austere nor coarse. He died in his villa at Lorium from the consequences of a cold on March 7, 161 A.D., in the seventy-fourth year of his age. In his last hours he was careful to show forth clearly his wishes as to the succession. The Praetorian prefects, Alfurius Fabius, Victorinus, and Sextinus, Cornelius Repnus, were summoned to his bedside, and in their presence he recommended Marcus Aurelius as his successor, and made no mention of Alverus. He then commanded that the golden statue of fortune, which stood continually in it, he imperial bedchamber, should be removed to that of Marcus, in token of the transference of the principate to the presumptive 
successor the tribune of the praetorian cohort in attendance then entered and asked for the watchword equanimity replied the emperor expressing in this his last utterance by spirit of his reign his end says the historian quadratus was most peaceful like a sweet sleep there is no dissenting voice in the senate when it was proponed to decree to this beloved sovereign a public funeral and consecrate his memory an immense funeral pile in the shape of a pyramid was erected in the campus martius crowned by a statue of the dead emperor standing in a chariot as the pyre was being consumed an eagle was allowed to escape as a token of the apotheosis of the dead and then marcus and lucius pronounced funeral orations in the forum a great spectacle of gladiators in the flavian amphitheatre was an indispensable part of the solemnities antoninus had erected a temple to the divine faustina on the sacred way close to the forum one forty a d this temple was now transformed in such a way as to serve for the worship of both antoninus and faustina it still stands one of the best preserved ancient buildings of rome and the inscription on the fade may still be read divio antonio et divis faustin x eight c consecrato of antonius anafastita from pedestal of the column of antonius pius End of chapter 27 Recording by Chris Caron Ham Lake, Minnesota